Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. This week we have a person who's been with us a number of times through the years and always brings some very interesting insights and thoughts to our process as we uh, navigate the news of the day, and that would be Brad Crone. And Brad is president of Campaign Connections. He's a political strategist, um, usually works with Democratic candidates, but he is uh, also very well known for being very critical of uh, his own party in the sense that he gives them uh, what I would call sort of a straight shot of what he thinks is going on. And that's always good. And it's always good to hear from you. So, Brad, welcome to the program. Delighted to have you back. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, I'd like to get your insight on what is happening these days because the news has dominated uh, maybe even uh, too much overload is being placed right now on all the various indictments involving former President uh, Trump and uh, his legal matters. Uh, I, I say that because I, not that it's not important and not that it's a big issue, but I think sometimes it pushes a lot of other issues off the plate. And we don't hear about them. But let's talk about that one because it is in the news and uh, new indictments seem to come almost every day. Um, so sort of give us an overview of where you think that stands. We are somewhere around 15 to 16 months away from uh, the election. We're about seven, eight months away from primaries. And uh, so that uh, is always going to be in the news during this period of time as we work toward the uh, elections of 2024. So, Brad, just give us sort of an overview of where you think this whole issue is and where it might be going. Don, I'll tell you, uh, the Donald Trump said on Thursday after he was leaving the federal courthouse that it was a sad day when he spoke to the press gaggle at National Airport, and it is a sad day. Never did I ever anticipate witnessing what we witnessed over the last 15, 30 days where a former president of the United States faced multiple indictments at the state level in New York, at the federal level in Miami, at the federal level in Washington, D.C., and more than likely at the state level in Fulton County, Atlanta, uh, Georgia, coming up probably pretty soon. And, and then, he's, then he's also got a number of personal lawsuits going on as well. Absolutely. And it, I think that it speaks to the character of the man, uh, maybe one or two instances where you litigate, I can understand, but it, it is a pattern of behavior for Donald Trump, not only recently, but throughout his career when he was dealing in real estate in Manhattan. And I just believe the guy is a, is a criminal enterprise. He is so self-centered on himself and his own power base that he really doesn't care about the impact that his actions and this activity is taking on the country as a whole. Now, saying that, I also understand that he has a constituency that believes that he is for them. They are the forgotten class, the, the uh, trailer park wing of the Republican Party, you could say. 
and uh, lower income, lower education level. They feel like that they've been neglected, that the economy shifted out from under them over the last two decades, and that Donald Trump is the person who understands them. So I I get it that he has a a built-in constituency. And I think it's important to point out that all the polls still show that he has an awful lot of support uh, in his his bid for uh, getting the Republican nomination. And 30-point lead over DeSantis, who is at 17%. So it's alarming. Uh, The narrative that uh, a couple of things that I think need to be looked at. This narrative that the election was stolen is, is total bunk. It's horse feathers. And, but he has been able to project it. And I believe we, we have a situation where Trump has told the lie so many times that he believes it and that his supporters believe it. And so that's troublesome. But also the fairness factor of the Justice Department, the weaponization of the government to go after political figures is very concerning. And the the conversations that Trump has, you, when you listen to him talk about you know, he's getting persecuted and Biden's son, Hunter, is getting off scot-free. And I listen to that and say he, he has a valid point there. Um, if I had neglected to report $4 million of income on my tax statement, or you had, both of us would probably be making little rocks out of big ones right now. And so I get the frustration that the conservative uh, Republicans have when it comes to fairness coming out of our, our judicial system. And I think that the Democrats must pay attention to that concern. Otherwise, we're going into a very deep and dark rabbit hole. Let me ask you this. Uh, You know, apparently, almost all the polls indicate that uh, neither President uh, Biden or uh, former President Trump uh, is the choice of many people. Most people, I've I've seen some surveys as much as 80% saying they'd rather have two different candidates, not just one, two. Right. And... Uh, you know, I made a comment earlier uh, in the week. Do we have to have an election in November of next year? Because our candidates for president and our candidates for governor aren't very good this time. And so the voter is forced to pick, well, who is it that you like the least? Um, so that's not good choices. I mean, really and truly, in 2024, we're going to have to decide between Joe Biden and Donald Trump again. You would think in a country of our size, with the leadership that we have, that we could find the two parties could find someone who would represent the the best interest of the country. And we are mired in this culture war, this this political divide that's worried about what library books are on the shelves and whether or not they're uh, the open borders or closed borders or semi-closed borders or building the wall and drag shows. When we, uh, just this week, Don, 
Fitch's dropped our credit rating from AAA to AA. The stock market took a hit of about 600 points and still rattled. And you've got Jamie Dimon from uh, J.P. Morgan Chase sitting there saying, we have got to deal with the systemic problem of national debt. It's going to impact us as we move forward economically, and we're not paying attention to it. We've got China and India on the rise with technological threats. We're not paying attention to it. So we we really do need, I believe, some young, youthful leadership who will hopefully be inspirational, but also help guide us in uh, some very turbulent waters right now. Well, you know, it's interesting. Nikki Haley is saying pretty much what you're saying in her campaign. And she's saying we're not paying any attention to the issues. And uh, But that's not resonating. That's, that's it to be, doesn't resonate at all. People are uh, focused on, these, as you say, these issues that are not as important overall um, on both sides of the issue. And then we do have the... the uh, the, the matter of Hunter Biden uh, that is out there that uh, uh, no matter how strong a case the Democrats feel they have against Trump, uh, the, re- the Republicans feel like, well, this is uh, this is an issue that needs to be handled as well. So uh, absolutely. So, and there's so, not equality on the charges. I, you know, I agree with that. Yeah. The, the, the Trump, the the level of Trump's crimes versus Biden's crimes are, you know, huge, just major. But notwithstanding, you can't have a two-tier justice system where uh, Hunter Biden's able to skate. You know, again, I go back to the fact if it was you or me and we had, you know, not reported $4 million in income to the Revenue Service, we would have faced criminal indictment. We would have been hauled down to the Sanford courthouse and more than likely six to 12 months, maybe more. So, you know, I, I it kind of upsets me that here's a guy not reporting his income tax. You and I are sitting here sweating it out every April 15th. Well, the the other concern, of course, that the mainstream Republicans have is the fact that uh, the, the top of the ballot is going to affect the rest of the ballots. And that's probably not good because on the state level of almost all the states, it seems that the Trump-backed candidates are not doing well. And so the, the Republican Party uh, is facing a real crisis. And uh, you're, of course, you're a Democrat. and uh, But it, the, the two-party system is a vital part of the way we govern our country. Well, I, I will uh, say this. I was a Democrat until 2017, and then I switched over uh, to unaffiliated. So I get to work for who I want to at this point in time. But I totally get what you're saying. And it's folks like me who are the moderate centrist voters sitting here scratching our heads saying, what the heck? I mean, our choices are going to be Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Don't like either one of them. And so, now, wait a minute, we've, we've still got a long time to go. Do you think anything will change during that period of time? I, I don't know. <laughs> that's the, that's a frustration. That's the concern. 
And of course, you know, one of the other factors is there's a lot of talk about Biden's age, but then Trump is no spring chicken either. No, Trump's 77 years old. So, I mean, can we find us a, a another 55-year-old candidate? And is that candidate DeSantis? He's had real problems connecting with people. Uh, he's got the Elizabeth Dole disease. He, he is very sharp very smart politically on the policy side, but a terrible retail politician. Uh, when he was out campaigning at the state fair in Iowa last weekend, just faux pas after faux pas after faux pas, and uh, really having a hard time engaging with people. He's very smart, but you have to ask the question, is he ready for prime time? You know, the only candidate that I see on the Republican, well, there are two candidates I see on the Republican front, maybe three who are ready for prime time, Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie, and Mike Pence. And I think all of them are very responsible leaders for the Republican Party. The problem they're having, Don, is that they're not getting any traction because when Donald Trump walks into the room, he sucks out all the oxygen in it. So I just think it's going to take a stick of dynamite to get him out of the way. Well, it's an interesting situation and one that uh, uh, we've never witnessed before. And the uh, next seven to eight months during the primary uh, time is going to be very interesting to watch. Our guest is Brad Crone, president of Campaign Connections, a political strategist. And we will be back with more here on Carolina Newsmakers right after we take time out for these messages. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has mama. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Car uh, Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, Brad Crone. Brad, uh, before he had good sense, was a journalist, and he at one time was with WPTF News, and that's before he had uh, uh, misguided thoughts and that he ought to be a political strategist. <laughs> but he's done quite well at it. Brad, it's always good to have you with us, as we've said several times before, because you always bring some very interesting uh, uh, insights to our situation. Uh, we, we talked a lot about the uh, federal race, I guess, for president in the first segment. Let's turn a little bit now to uh, the state of North Carolina, because we uh, 
will, of course, have some very important changes in our situation. In addition to uh, the races for governor and, uh, of course, all the congressional seats will be up. We've still got some questions about the redistricting and what districts people might be in. We've got that issue. And then we also have uh, Tim Moore, who has been the North Carolina Speaker of the House, a very powerful position in North Carolina state politics, saying he will not seek a sixth term as House Speaker. So let, let's start with that one, um, because uh, the President Pro Tem of the Senate and the North Carolina Speaker of the House, very important uh, people in the way that North Carolina is governed. Uh, who do you hear is a candidate to replace Tim Moore as Speaker of the House? Well, uh, Jason Sane from Lincoln County, uh, John Bell from Goldsboro uh, are the two leading candidates at this point in time. Uh, Mr. Bell from Goldsboro probably has the strongest uh, organization at this point in time. I hear they're they're ongoing talks between the two. Uh, the rules chair uh, may also get into the race. And uh, there's some speculation that there may be uh, another candidate, to, a surprise candidate, to, to get into the race. I think a lot of it, Don, will depend on the performance of how well the House Republicans do in the election next year and who is the candidate who can raise the most money and help the most candidates to ensure that they continue to have a supermajority. And I think that will be um, I think that will be a very big question mark. There's no doubt the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem are the two most important positions in state government right now simply because the legislature is so powerful with the Republican supermajorities. They have they have effectively marginalized uh, the governor uh, and, and his agenda and his administration uh, with stringent handcuffs, particularly in budget documentation and the passage and implementation of the state budget. So it, it will be intriguing to watch to see the positioning we will have uh, a budget rollout next week. I think Speaker Moore was very crafty in working with the President Pro Tem um, on uh, Mr. Berger on getting a budget in place that reduces corporate taxes, but the reduction in taxes are based on revenue triggers. Uh, I think we'll see a 2% drop in the corporate tax rate from like 4.5% to 2.5% over the next four years if the state meets certain revenue triggers. And those revenue triggers are going to be based on the economic and industrial growth of the state from a revenue standpoint, sales, service, taxes, uh, and expanded commercial uh, growth that we're seeing here in the state. But also, it's going to be critical that their revenue projections will be critical because they're based on forecast that the placement will have placement of up to four casinos. And then also the, the passage of what is known as a video lottery terminal. And uh, the gambling, the gaming and the gambling revenue is going to be critical for the state to meet the revenue targets to reduce the corporate income tax. So that will be rolled out in the budget next week. A couple of caveats. 
the the Christian coalition within the House caucus, the conservative Republicans are saying they don't want to go in and vote for a budget that allows for gambling. So what they may do as a compromise is offer uh, municipal referendums. For example, there's language in the budget that would allow Rocky Mount, the city of Rocky Mount, to apply for a casino. So rather than having the state mandate that, it would be up to a local referendum. So you would have a referendum in Rocky Mount, the city of Rocky Mount, on whether or not they would like to have a gaming casino. And you'd see the same thing play out in Rockingham County, and probably in Robertson County, uh, with the Lumbee Indians. So gaming and uh, video poker are going to be critical elements to uh, revenue, the revenue scheme for the state over the next four years. Um, the, there's no doubt they're going to be huge economic drivers for the local areas as well, but that's going to be intriguing. Then Medicaid expansion, which is included in the budget, uh, there's a group of Republicans saying that if the governor vetoes the budget, they may not vote to override the veto because they don't support Medicaid. They, they don't want to support Medicaid expansion. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot of shifting water over the legislature and all eyes will be on Jones Street next week as they get back to work and I think push a budget through. So. You know, getting back to the question, um, the position's extremely important. I will say this, Tim Moore has done an excellent job as a legislator speaker uh, navigating all the, the hills and valleys that he's had to navigate. And, um, you know, I, I think we the, the institution will miss his leadership. And he's had it for a long period of time. But I think he's been a very solid voice uh, and a voice of reason for the Republican caucus. Well, we are, of course, uh, are looking at the governor's race. And apparently at this point in time, uh, the lieutenant governor has uh, the uh, the uh, edge of the Republican nomination. Uh, are, there are other candidates. Uh, do you think that situation will change? Well, it's going to be an interesting primary. It's sort of similar to the presidential primary. You have one candidate with a pretty major lead with Andy Wells from Hickory and Mark Walker from Greensboro, both in the race at this point in time. Mark Walker put out a, a, a message on X, which is formerly Twitter, that um, the, the, the lieutenant governor may have had some criminal charges and there's a little dust up about that this week. Um, apparently, Walker says he's going to to show evidence of the case next week. If I was a betting man, it would probably have to do with uh, check issues. You know, the lieutenant governor's filed for bankruptcy twice and has, has had financial difficulty, like almost anybody has had financial difficulty. So I don't know if it's going to raise, you know, if it's going to be an element of um, high criminal activity, it may be a situation where he had a couple of bad checks. If that's the case, it's going to be, Oh, well, whatever. But it, you know, Walker making the accusation that there was some, some criminal charges that he's found his campaigns found. Well, 
It's sort of like the 1984 Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? Show me the beef. And that's going to be the onus that the Walker campaign will face next week. Andy Wells, on the other hand, Don, he has the ability to go in and write a check. Andy's been very, very successful um, a business person, businessman. He has the resources. If he wanted to come in and write a check for $3 million, he has that ability. He's hired Carter Wren, who I believe is one of the best Republican, one of the best political consultants and political minds in the state of North Carolina, has been for almost four decades. I have a lot of respect for Carter. And that could upend this race. With that said, Robinson continues to have a very strong base within the conservative, super conservative wing of the Republican Party. And like Trump, it will take a stick of dynamite to beat him. And even if he even if you outspend him, Robinson has such an advantage at the grassroots level. Well, we also, of course, have the uh, uh, state treasurer, Dale Falwell. And uh, there's also have been some rumors about uh, agricultural uh, commissioner. Commissioner Troxler running. Do you think that they will enter? Well, obviously, Dale Falwell has already entered the race. What are their odds? Dale's entered the race. The question is going to be, will the financing be there to support a media campaign that will allow uh, Falwell to deliver his message? Falwell's message is that he attacks problems. He doesn't attack people. Resonates with the, the centrist, moderate, uh, country club, Main Street Republican crowd. And uh, Wells, Robinson, and Walker are all going to be fighting for that super conservative wing. And that'll be an interesting dynamic as it plays out during the primary process. The key thing for the state treasurer is being able to make the telephone calls and put together the fundraising events that will allow them to get on the television and radio across the state to communicate with Republican primary voters. And on Troxler, uh, I know Troxler's had some uh, family. His wife has not been very well this summer. He's been taking care of her. He's also had some health challenges. I think he's had a hip replaced or in the process of getting a hip replaced. So he has until Labor Day, I think, uh, to make a decision. I will say this, if Troxler gets in the race, he will shake it up, and uh, he could be sort of the spoiler candidate like Holzhauser was in, in the 1972 primary when Holzhauser came as an outsider and upset Jim Gardner, uh, the the preeminent candidate, the front runner in the GOP primary. So Troxler has that ability to shake things up. Well, that's going to be an interesting to watch. And, and in the next segment, we want to talk about uh, the uh, Council of State positions because if Troxler runs and Dale, uh, and of course, we'll have perhaps a new attorney general because on the Democratic side, Josh Stein is the candidate and he apparently has a lead that uh, will almost assure at this point in time uh, his uh, position he, on the ballot. He does. One interesting thing there, Don, is that the state Supreme Court Justice Mike Morgan is seriously considering a primary challenge against Stein, uh, the uh, African-American judge who served almost 30-some years, 30-plus years on the bench here in Wake County. He's originally from Newburn, 
And uh, I continue to hear that Justice Morgan is making telephone calls across the state and is seriously considering a challenge, which will be an interesting dynamic there is that Stein has built a very strong donor network, but his grassroots network may be a question mark. Morgan doesn't have the donor network that Stein does, but is very well respected within the political establishment, the grassroots organizations, in particular, the black political action committees across the state. So I think I would wait. I think, again, Labor Day is going to be the key time frame there, and we'll see whether or not Mike Morgan gets in the race. If he does, it is definitely going to shake up things on the Democratic Party side when it comes to the governor's election. And he could be an inspirational candidate as well as an insurgent candidate for the Democrats. Well, that's a that's a uh, lead in to our uh, saying in the next segment, we'll talk about the council of state positions because there will be at least uh, a number of positions open there, uh, depending on exactly who ends up running for governor. We'll do that and uh, more when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. So you stay tuned. Who said that? Me, down here. What are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Plant puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it. Unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on uh, Carolina uh, Newspaper. I almost said we're we're back on uh, Campaign Connections, but that's because our guest is uh, Brad Crone, who is president of Campaign Connections. We've discussed uh, in the first segment, we talked about the national situation and the fact that we are in uh, a period of time where we are uh, have never been before on definitely uncharted waters with all the controversy about uh, what's going on with uh, former President uh, Trump and, of course, the concerns about Hunter Biden. And we're also concerned about uh, uh, President Biden and the fact that so many people are just not satisfied with either candidate. We talked about that in the first segment. The second segment, we turned to the North Carolina situation in particular, talked a good bit about the gubernatorial race. Now, let's turn to the fact that the uh, Council of State uh, is going to have a certainly some new faces. The North Carolina Attorney General obviously will be up because Josh Sine is running for 
uh, for governor. And uh, so we will have new candidates for North Carolina's attorney general, perhaps one of the most important elected positions. What are you hearing there? Well, Dan Bishop announced on WBT uh, Thursday of this week, this past week, uh, Don, and it becomes an immediate front runner for the Republicans simply because of his credentials serving in the state Senate and then serving a number of terms, two or three terms, I believe now, in the United States Congress. But Bishop really is persona non grata with the, the House Republican leadership in Washington. So politically, it's a smart move for Bishop to move back down to the state level. He will have a built-in base of the super conservatives. He was the author of House Bill 2 back in 2016, very controversial piece of legislation uh, known as the bathroom bill. So uh, his bona fides with the conservatives is without question. The debate will be, is he enough mainstream to represent the state as a whole. And that's going to be a real big question mark. The other leading candidate in the Republican side for attorney general is Tom Murray, former state legislator, uh, left uh, the state legislature, went back to school. He was a registered pharmacist, had been very successful uh, in, in the local pharmacy business, went back to school and got his law degree and uh, practiced as an assistant state prosecutor up in Granville County. Uh, doing felony cases, and now is running for attorney general. And and um, while Bishop may be the front runner, I don't think you can discount Tom Murray because Tom Murray is going to work day and night. The guy is nonstop. Um, and I think he is very effective in, in building out a statewide grassroots network. I think he's going to have financial support. And I also think that the lawyers are going to see uh, Tom Murray is probably more able to do business with than having a, a super conservative philosophical candidate such as, as Dan Bishop. It will be an intriguing primary, no doubt. Um, on the Democratic side, it's sort of an open field right now. Uh, only one candidate has announced so far that would be uh, a formidable candidate. That's Charles Ingram. Uh, Mr. Ingram's a very successful uh, trial attorney, former prosecutor from Kenansville down in Duplin County. Uh, he is out campaigning uh, across the state on the Democratic side. The word is, the speculation is that Jeff Jackson may end up getting in the race or possibly if Josh Stein can talk Mike Morgan, the state Supreme Court justice, into not running for governor but running for AG, then the, it, it would help unify the party. Um, so, that, you know, those are big question marks still left out there in the Democratic side of things uh, for who, who will be the flag bearer for the Democrats as attorney general. Jackson, of course, being a strong former statewide candidate for United States Senate, ran for Congress, served in the state Senate four terms uh, representing Charlotte and um, is sort of the youthful hope uh, a light of hope for the Democrats moving forward uh, would say he's in his late 30s, early 40s at this point in time and is a very good retail politician. So Jackson is saying he would like to stay in Congress, but if the Republicans come in and redistrict 
and he loses his his district, uh, he, he could very easily switch over and run for attorney general. So a lot of a, a lot of moving points there. The one thing I believe the Democrats need to do is to put together a slate of candidates that will be acceptable to their base constituencies. So Rachel Hunt, for example, is running for lieutenant governor, Jim Hunt's daughter, uh, then Josh Stein or Mike Morgan at the top of the ticket. And then uh, having if if Josh, if Mike Morgan decides to run for attorney general, then you would have uh, uh, the first Jewish nominee for uh, the Democratic nomination for governor. You'd have Rachel Hunt running for lieutenant governor and Mike Morgan, an African-American. So they'd have a very balanced ticket when it comes to their key constituency groups. And I think the Democrats are very conscious of that simply because, you know, if you have Trump, Robinson and Bishop, you're going to have super conservatives. Uh, you know, they are to the right of uh, Senator Thurman and Senator Helms, the new populist, super conservative Republicans. So the Democrats are thinking that they will be able to score points with independent and with centrist moderate voters uh, presenting a better balanced ticket to the voters next November. Of course, uh, as uh, we mentioned, Dale Falwell is, is running for governor. Uh, that takes him out, I guess, of running uh, for re-election as state treasurer, another very important position. Who are you hearing there as far as Democratic and Republican possibilities? Well, the front runner for the Republicans, no doubt, is John Bradford out of Huntersville and Cornelius up in Mecklenburg County. And then Wes Harris, an economics professor from UNC Charlotte, a Democrat from down in southern Mecklenburg County. So it is highly likely that the next state treasurer will be coming from uh, Mecklenburg County. And that will, won't will be a bad thing simply because of the concentration of the banking industry and commerce that we see coming out of the Queen City. So those are the two leading. I have not heard of any challenges on those two races in either party at this point in time. Wes Harris uh, has a, a PhD in economics, has worked uh, in the business world and now is a professor at UNC Charlotte. And then Bradford is an insurance agent and a very well-respected businessman and a very effective legislator. He ran the legislation in the House uh, last month that did the reorganization for Blue Cross Blue Shield, which was a very complicated piece of legislation, and he handled it very effectively. So uh, run down the rest of the council of state positions and uh, who you see as candidates. Well, you've got uh, a lieutenant governor's race on the Republican side between uh, Hal Weatherman, who is former chief of staff to Dan Forrest, is Sue Myrick, was former chief of staff for Sue Myrick, very well-known congresswoman, former mayor of Charlotte, um, Sam Page, the sheriff, up in Rockingham County is getting into that race. I think there are a couple other Republicans who are looking uh, at the race. Deanna Ballard, a former state senator up in the mountains, has announced that she's getting into it. So the Republicans are going to have a very spirited primary when it comes to uh, running for lieutenant governor. 
on the Democratic side, Rachel Hunt is the front runner. And uh, to be honest with you, uh, Don, I've not heard any other candidates looking at challenging Senator Hunt. Uh, she, of course, lives in Charlotte and has been active in local politics down there. This is her first term in the state Senate. She served one term in the state house. And, uh, and of course, is the daughter of Jim Hunt, former four-term longest-serving governor in the history of the state. And while Jim Hunt's now in his early 80s, he still continues to have a major footprint from a political standpoint across the state of North Carolina when it comes to the business community as well as when it comes to the Democratic Party. And the, the, the Hunt brand is still uh, very well-respected and uh, is sort of, you know, gold uh, in the Democratic Party. So mounting a challenge against uh, Rachel Hunt in the primary, I think it's going to be difficult. And I say that because she's able to raise money with the help of her father. And uh, that is, that's paramount. And so she's clearly the front runner. I don't know if any other Democrats jump in it. If they do, they'll be secondary candidates for sure. Other races uh, on the state ag commissioner race, if, if uh, Commissioner uh, Troxler decides to run for governor and vacates his office or decides to retire, that you'll have an open seat. I've not heard any names on the Democratic side. The, the one name that I do hear on the Republican side is Lisa Stone Barnes, who's a state senator from Nash County. She and her husband, uh, have a very successful farm operation in Nashville, probably some of the largest uh, producers of sweet potatoes and produce across the nation, has a, a excellent record in the state Senate, is a very good retail politician, and uh, has a reputation of uh, the highest degree with the farmers across the state. So, she would be a very formidable candidate for the Republicans if Mr. Troxler decides to step down. Uh, the state senator, Brent, um, I'm blanking on his name, from Sampson County, um, has said he would be a candidate. His name's been bannered around, but he said that he's not going to run. Um, so that will be interesting to watch as well. The other labor commissioner race, there are a couple Republicans running for the labor commissioner race. John Hardister, probably the front runner in that race. There's a representative from Richmond County who's looking at getting in the race as well. Probably be a two-person race. Josh Dobson, of course, the current labor commissioner is stepping down from the position after serving a number of years in the state house and then one term as labor commissioner. Have not heard any talk whatsoever about the Department of Public Instruction, another key position, the state auditor, Don. You know, Beth Wood had uh, some serious criminal uh, charges against her that she, uh, following a, a one-car accident last Christmas coming out of Rufus Edmonston's Christmas party. And so she's had uh, a couple of dings to her armor, uh, but have not heard anybody say that they are going to challenge her on the Democratic side, I did hear uh, earlier in the week that the Republicans are recruiting a couple of candidates, so that will be interesting. The commissioner of insurance, um, 
Mike Causey is running for re-election on the Republican side. David Wheeler, a businessman out of Avery County, I believe, is running against him on the Democratic side. Mr. Wheeler is a successful businessman and uh, ran a political action committee going after Madison Cawthorn last year, showing that he can raise a lot of money. So uh, the commissioner of insurance race is definitely going to be uh, one of great interest as well. So uh, I think it's, you know, very fluid at this point in time. During the next few weeks, I think you'll see it solidify. Labor Day sort of being the, the major date calendar point where people are going to be making the decisions whether or not it's a go or no no go. And we'll see the same front on, on legislative races as well. Interesting. Great uh, summary of all those uh, Council of State positions uh, and also the uh, uh, all the races that will be on the ballot for state government next next uh, next November. Uh, we're going to take a break. We have one final segment with our guest, Brad Crone, who's the president of Campaign Connections, political strategist, and always gives us a great view on what's going to happen. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by End Family Fire, Brady and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers, Brad Crone, the president of Campaign Connections, a frequent guest on our program through the years, is our guest. As we said, he is a former member of the staff of WPTF years ago. Uh, since that time, he's been involved uh, as a special assistant to uh, North Carolina Commissioner of Agriculture, Jim Graham, who was a very colorful figure, uh, uh, several other things. And, he, of course, he is now a, an advisor uh, and consultant to uh, political candidates. He is a registered uh, unaffiliate but has uh, more ties to the Democratic Party. We always point that out so that you know exactly where he's coming from when he makes his comments. We spent the first segment talking about the presidential situation and all the various legal challenges to that and how this uh, whole uh, next seven, eight months up, uh, up and through the primary season is going to be so interesting to watch. So if you missed that segment, you may want to go back and listen to it. 
Uh, let's uh, turn right now to the final segment of the uh, General Assembly because we still don't have uh, all the uh, final outcome of the budget. As you said, there are some uh, very interesting races. Uh, most everybody sort of has assumed that Medicaid expansion is going to be approved, but it is tied to the approval of the budget. Um, and, uh, of course, there are a number of other uh, uh, issues that are involved right now that uh, could make that uh, wrapping up of the budget process very interesting. So give us some insight on how you think that's going to be settled. Well, the, the uh, conference committee has worked the last two weeks, uh, day in and day out, and then there have been C-suite meetings between the president pro tem and the Speaker of the House. And the, the you know, we had Gray Smoke this week signaling that there were agreements on the budget triggers for uh, revenue as well as tax percentage levels at the corporate uh, on the corporate stand front. Uh, so I think you're going to see movement this coming week in the legislature of getting the budget out. The political drama, Don, is going to be, will the governor accept it? Because he feels that the legislature has not done enough for funding when it comes to public education and uh, increasing pay for our educators and classroom teachers. And, uh, with that said, he is getting Medicaid expansion. So there's going to be some good and some bad in the budget uh, when it comes to the governor's decision of, you know, do I sign the bill, do I let it sit, or do I veto it? And there is some feedback coming that the super conservatives within the Republican House caucus are going to say that if the governor vetoes the budget, they may not vote to override the veto. So a lot of drama, a lot of hijinks. There'll be a lot of tension on Jones Street this week, uh, this coming week, as they get that hammered out, and everybody will be holding their breath to see exactly what the governor does. And once you know the legislature gets the budget drama over with, they may have uh, a little bit of break, uh, you know, around Labor Day. And then they'll be coming back to deal with redistricting, both at the congressional level and at the legislative level. And all bets are off uh, during those weeks when they start working on the congressional district lines and on the legislative lines. The, the top mission will be to add some congressional seats. And where that happens, is it two seats? Is it three seats for the Republicans? We don't know. Um Don Davis, Wiley Nickel, Jeff Jackson, all sitting on pins and needles because if there are targets, if, if the congressional Democrats have targets, they would be the top three, I would say. There's been discussion that if Jeff Jackson's district is redrawn into a Republican district, then the question mark is what impact will that have on Dan Bishop? It's the balloon effect. If you tie the balloon at one end, you're going to have an effect somewhere else. So it will be intriguing to watch as the legislature goes through the business of uh, looking at congressional redistricting and adding. Right now, we have a 7-7 split. So I'm predicting that the at the end of the session, if they go into adjournment, probably October, then the Republicans will probably walk away with the congressional map that has nine seats 
in it, and the Democrats will end up with five seats. And on the legislative side, they really can't tinker very much with the district. Um, I mean, they've got super majorities right now in both chambers, and it, I just don't see them being able to move the needle anymore where they can pick up any more seats. They may do some maneuvering in Wake County to try and, and strengthen the district, Aaron Perez district down in the southern part of the county. You may see some movement over in New Hanover in Wilmington to try and strengthen a house seat district up in the northern uh, northwestern part of New Hanover County. I don't see anywhere else there can be super changes in the lineup of uh, the maps that would favor the Republicans other than what they have right now. So I think the big question mark, Don, will be can the Democrats find enough districts? I know Anderson Clayton, the new chairwoman of the Democratic Party, is going around the state saying, we'll have 170 candidates on the ballot for state House and state Senate. But the Democrats will be much smarter to say, I'm going to pick out 10 to 15 seats that I'm going to fight in. For example, up in Ahoskey in Hertford County, over in Nash County, uh, where and uh, making sure that they protect um, in Scotland County, Garland Pierce. Um, so th they have really got to figure out where are we going to fight and try and pick up seats that we lost? You know, they lost an African-American seat over in Granville County last election. So they've got to, to it, they would be smarter to pick out the 10 to 15 most competitive races that you can fight in and hopefully pick up a number of those seats that will turn over the supermajority status for the Republicans and at least make the Democrats relevant when it comes to legislative bargaining. Brad, you uh, have been around not quite as long as I have because I'm over this dirt, but uh, you're, 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 I'm getting close to it. you're getting there. Uh, did you ever think, say, 15 years ago, that we would be talking about the gaming legislation? And this is representative of how people's morals and issues uh, that relate to their lifestyle have changed. Here we're talking about having maybe four casinos and the gaming laws are changing radically. Did you ever think that we would see the time when North Carolina would have this kind of uh, involvement in that, uh, in that arena? No, I really didn't. But I'll say this, it doesn't bother me either. Uh, seeing the economic impact that it could have, I, I do think um, – there was a period of time when I think the Cherokee could have negotiated uh, better so that they would not have faced the situation that they faced with the Catawba over in Charlotte and with the Lumbee in Robeson County. And there could have been you know, less ill feelings, hard feelings uh, between the only nationally recognized uh, tribe of Indians with the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Nation up uh, on the Koala boundary in Jackson and Cherokee counties. Um, they did not want to negotiate with any other tribe to look at creating an imprint of gaming. So when the Commonwealth of Virginia allowed gaming in Chesapeake and in Portsmouth 
and uh, there's a casino getting ready to open in Norfolk as well. And then, then in Danville, uh, North Carolina, I think the Republicans really opened their eyes saying, listen, we are missing an opportunity to create economic activity as well as a revenue generator. So I, I never thought that I would see it, but I understand it. And, uh, you know, if they open one in Rocky Mount, I look forward to riding down there and playing some blackjack and uh, slot machines every now and then. I love going up to Cherokee, so um, I'm excited about having equal opportunity for the eastern part of the state. One interesting dynamic, Don, that's intriguing to me is Robbie Davis, the chairman of the Nash County Commission, is making noise that he doesn't necessarily support having uh, gaming in Nash County. So there may be a split between the mayor, Sandy Robertson, the mayor of Rocky Mount, and the chairman of the Nash County Commission. And the question there will be, you know, do they proceed with something in the city of Rocky Mount, or does the political fight mean that Roanoke Rapids gets to turn uh, the Randy Parton Theater into a casino operation that's already an entertainment district? And uh, does Roanoke Rapids benefit from the political divide that you're seeing between the Nash County chairman and the mayor of Rocky Mount? So that'll be intriguing. And the last thing on the gaming front is the video lottery terminals. You know, allowing uh, if you go into a, a local bar and you want to play $20 of video poker, you're going to be able to. And under the guidelines of the legislation, it's very similar. I, I worked a lot in Mississippi and, and Louisiana at the early part of 2000. And the, the video lottery terminal legislation is very similar to what you have in Louisiana. You have a mom and pop bar. They put in a, a video poker machine. It's connected to the main server up at the state lottery. And every night at two o'clock in the morning, the state gets their money. So it's millions and millions of dollars going to the state on a daily basis. It's much more transparent. It's much more uh, open. The lottery can be in the business as well as uh, opportunity for prom and pops to be in it as well. So that'll be an economic driver. And never, you know, we had that debate back in 2007 when Jim Black was speaker of the house and uh, the state decided to get rid of, get out of the video poker business and, you know, woof, a few years later, we're we're back in it. This time, the legislation's a whole lot stronger uh, as we move forward. So, I think we're in we're in for an interesting the rest of third quarter and fourth quarter. The campaigns will really start kicking off around Thanksgiving. You're going to see media broadcasting, television, radio ads at the top of the ticket at the presidential level. North Carolina may not be a high priority from a presidential standpoint, but the governor's race is going to be a multi-million dollar affair. And we really get to see from the candidates what their vision of North Carolina is and what will be the future of the Tar Heel State. You have left me with just enough time to thank you very much for your insight and input into uh, what's going to happen during the next uh, as you said, this next period of time up to Labor Day. A program has been produced by Jason Kong. And if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. It's carolinanewsmakers.com. We'll be back next week. Have a good week, everybody. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.